Welcome to the show, everyone, and thank you for listening, or are we listening to you? It's the Ford Fiesta. I'm Fire Paul Preston. And I'm Age of Adam Line. Coming up, we'll have a conversation about the conversation in the conversation. Pardon me? What'd you say? And if you're new to our show, we're watching every movie in which Harrison Ford has made an appearance because we realize there are some we haven't seen. And that's just not right. We had to change that. So uh, this week is a classic, a Best Picture nominee in which the director was beaten by himself. The conversation. Now, please check out past episodes, because before American Graffiti, everything Ford was in was pretty obscure and made for a good episode. What I like to call the most fun you'll have about a movie you know nothing about. (laughs) And of course, subscribe where you can. Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, YouTube, the whole deal. And themovieguys.net. Also, follow us at The Movie Guys all over social media. Now, if you don't know the conversation, we're happy to recap it for you later in the show. But for now... What's new in the world of Harrison Ford? Yes, Harrison Ford news, and this is news to us based on a show we just did a few weeks ago, which is that director Richard Rush passed away at uh, 91 years old back on April 8th, and he was the director of Getting Straight, which we just talked about and learned about at the same time. I believe I had to edit out of that show, Paul, that you thought he had already died. Yeah, because he had just died before we put posted it. Yeah. Paul, be careful what you say. I know. Uh, also, uh, be careful what you say and go play the lottery. I don't know. Damn it, I've already mentioned Harrison Ford. All right, we need to take it easy. I understand it's power now. Well, keep mentioning that Indiana Jones 5 is happening. <laughs> well, uh... Oh, speaking of which, uh, we have mm-hmm. casting news from that. We talked about Phoebe Waller-Bridge getting cast and who knows what role. <laughs> we still don't know the roles of any of these actors, but we do know two more have jumped on board. Mads Mikkelsen, <gasps> who improves every franchise that he gets involved with. Be still my potential Indiana Jones villain heart. But, you know, it seems right, but he pulled off Galen Urso quite well and uh, is not a villain, you know, so I don't know. It'd be, he's, That's true. Uh, but, of course, yeah, he does have history as Hannibal. He's the bad guy in Doctor Strange. And uh, he has now recently been announced to replace Johnny Depp as Grindelwald in the ongoing uh, Fantastic Beasts movies. So... Maybe he would be excited to play a villain after all that. <laughs> so, uh... Thomas Kretschmann, also on board. You may know him as Baron Wolfgang von Strucker in the Marvel movies for the Hydra. Uh, But I remember him specifically from being in King Kong and then Wanted kind of back to back in the mid 2000s. uh, But still constantly working. And now we'll find himself in an Indiana Jones movie, which we all would like, I think. You know, there's so many characters show up in the Marvel movie that I just never thought I would see on screen. Batrock the Leaper would top the list that I thought would I'd never see on the big big screen. And then to make a reappearance uh, when he shows up again in, in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I was like, oh, my God, I have two hits of of Batrock the Leaper in, in live action cinema. I am so happy. Uh, well, you're just going to get happier because returning to score the film Indiana Jones 5, John Williams. So he's done with Star Wars, but he is not done with Indiana Jones. So he's coming back to do Indiana Jones 5. I never thought I'd hear those words. I never thought they would make another Indiana Jones. And I totally put to bed when John Williams was done with Star Wars. I was like, that's the end of an era. But in my head, that was also the end of him doing Indiana Jones or anything, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, whatever. But oh, my God, that's the thing people always talk about. Better save up for retirement. It's like if you're doing what you love, why would you retire? Why would John Williams retire? Yeah, that's true. You hear about him lessening his time in person when he does the Hollywood Bowl shows. And sure enough, uh, uh, who shows up there? Thomas Newman, I think. Right. Or David Newman. One of the Uh, David Newman shows up and and, uh, conducts a lot. Clint Eastwood, John Williams. I love these guys. They just keep going until right. Until until they're told to stop because they got a lot to give. And they have no interest in just sitting by a pool in uh, Palm Springs, you know? <laughs> I mean, if, when I finally get the chance to be a feature film director, or you do, oh, what, are we going to quit? No way, I worked too long to get here. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was that one. Oh, yeah, that's enough of that. No. 
one of the great coups of uh, a couple years ago when he did the Hollywood Bowl was uh, that he played, instead of playing Raiders of the Lost Ark or anything from Raiders that night, he early on in the show did a suite from Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which doesn't have the proper, you know, it's not as big with the, the Indiana Jones theme and it has Mutt's theme and all these other great themes in it. But when it finally does hit the Indiana Jones theme and everybody cheers, I turn to the person next to me and I go, John Williams just got this entire crowd to cheer Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Now that is a feat. <laughs> and he's coming back. They're, they just announced the Hollywood Bowl uh, summer schedule. And yeah. uh, there's two dates set for the maestro of the movies, John Williams. And last news about Indiana Jones 5 looks like they're going to Scotland to film. So that should be interesting. Uh, with the Oh, I love the tapestries there. You know, he has Scottish roots. Oh, the guy good that looks Lord. The tapestries. Maybe I've asked for too much. Uh, <laughs> you think Harrison Ford will have to put on a Scottish accent again? Oh, God, please no. Harrison Ford can't. Indiana Jones shouldn't. <laughs> we can, we'll have that talk in you know, a couple of months. Uh, and then as ever, I Google Harrison Ford news just to see what comes up. And not a lot of... Uh, the stuff that you normally have with gossip and everything, but Screen Rant put out an article pushing the theory that Ford should return as Jack Ryan for a sequel of Tom Clancy's Without Remorse, which I just saw this week, the Michael B. Jordan film. If you haven't seen it yet, it's vintage Tom Clancy stuff. There's, But it's really the origin story of Mr. Clark, who Willem Dafoe played in Clear and Present Danger. So, Oh, really? Yeah. So what, is Michael B. Jordan playing that character? Yeah, who starts out as John Kelly, gets double, not double cross, but gets like his whole uh, whole Navy SEAL team gets ambushed by evil Russians, which is great to have evil Russians back in any form. And then, uh, you know, then his whole action movie. But by the end, he pretty much has to disappear and gets that moniker put on him. And you realize that he's becomes and he's talking about already talking about the Rainbow Six squad and all that coming ah. up. So so I think Screenwright just said, wouldn't it be fun? I get then Harrison Ford comes back as Jack Ryan, oh. who's now like the vice president or whatever he is by the time Clancy finished writing the books. And yeah. you could put it all together and Ooh. combine the old Philip Noyce movies with the new Amazon film. Noyce. Yeah, so <laughs> it'd be nice. That has to happen. That's pretty cool. Not a bad theory. Yeah, it'd be fun. Ah, I love I love I love that uh, you know the, the the Harrison Ford may not be in a movie right now, but two of the properties are are going great guns. I love that Mosquito Coast is a TV show right now, and uh, and uh, Tom Clancy. You know the the world of Jack Ryan is is uh, uh, currently uh, uh, out on Amazon. Yeah, I should do uh, some kind of research and check out that Mosquito Coast, but uh, there's too many streaming services. So by the way, I, I don't I don't want to uh, uh, move too too far ahead from what we're watching here, but. Um, I had to do some research and I had to watch Expendables 3 for this article I was writing. You, have you seen Expendables 3? I did. You know, I want to oh. say it had Harrison Ford, but clearly there's many of his movies I haven't seen. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that this podcast is proving. But that one I did get out to. Yeah. Oh, my God. Mel Gibson, Harrison Ford, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Gibson is clearly in a different movie than everybody else. He's got stakes and emotion and like uh, everyone else is just doing like standard action movie 101 walkthrough. And Gibson is like, like feeling it like he does, you know, he brings that oh, man. gravitas to the movie and he brings it to Expendables three, which doesn't deserve it. And he's so good. Oh, I can't wait till it's okay to like him again. Yeah. Should probably just do a The Gibson what would the Gibson Ford Fiesta show be? Uh, the Gibson uh, Quinceanera. <laughs> the Gibson Sierra. <laughs> the Gibson Yera. <laughs> the Gibson Yera. <laughs> no, I absolutely want to roll right into Mel Gibson after this, but I, I, I don't know if he... I don't know if that's acceptable. <laughs> I don't know if there'd be an audience. One more quick recurring segment before we get to the recap. May 8th. 1984, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is released. I remember being pretty stoked for this. I was a young kid. I saw that oh, movie yeah. oh, six yeah. nights in a row. <gasps> you did? When I was when I was a wee 14-year-old lad. Yeah. Star Wars was such as this magnificent, perfect thing. And the idea that they made sequels to movies was learned when there was The Empire Strikes Back. My parents had to explain what sequels were, that they're, no, no, they do, they, you could do these stories a second time. And I was like, oh my God, I get to watch all these people from Star Wars again? 
And then of course, you know, like, well, they're gonna make another one, right? Yes, they are, they're making a trilogy. What's a trilogy? You know, so then Return of the Jedi. So as of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I knew to get psyched at the very idea of a Raiders of the Lost Ark because there would be another one. Oh my God, I remember sitting outside the mall, uh, with a marquee right there, knowing that Indiana, we were going to see Indiana Jones, but we got there too early. And so we're just sitting out there and, and uh, listening to the Reds game or something like that. And I'm reading comic books that dad bought me and I just keep looking up at that marquee. Oh, I got that image in my head. I could feel, I could feel the weather that day. I was so excited and everything was so primed to go see Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. My goodness. I'm thinking about it. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself that outside of Quest for Fire and The Artist, most films are just a series of conversations. <laughs> well, here's a film that hinges its entire concept on one. And we'll tell you about it now in our patented Movie Guys recap. Let's do it! The conversation opens appropriately with a conversation between Anne and Mark, played by American Graffiti's Cindy Williams and Apocalypse Now's Frederick Forrest. The two circle San Francisco's Union Square, having a conversation about nothing. What do you think? I always think that he was once somebody's baby boy. As they converse, their audio goes in and out, flanging with digital artifacts, revealing that they are being recorded. And some of the people in the crowd around them aren't just bystanders who look like Gene Hackman, but are actually Gene Hackman, who plays surveillance expert Harry Call, who runs a crew of snoops. Which is what they would probably call a remake of the conversation starring Peter Billingsley. <laughs> not, not Frankie Munoz, Peter Billingsley. No, not Frankie <laughs> Munoz. You want to swing to change no, that up for Frankie Munoz? <laughs> Oh, you mean that 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 2020 kid star uh, Frankie Mooney's Paul? Uh, am I being too old with my reference there? Jonathan Taylor Thomas in Snoops. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Several surveillance methods, from a long-range microphone on a tower to gift boxes hiding reel-to-reel tape recorders carried by bystanders, are used to capture the conversation. All this data goes back to a recording van and into the headset of Stan, played by the Godfather's John Cazale. Because when you want to round out your cast. Go with the best. I can handle things. I'm smart. But believe it or not, a lifetime of secretly watching people will make you feel like you're being watched. And so it is for Harry, who has three deadbolts and an alarm system on his apartment and breaks up with his girlfriend, Amy, played by Terry Gar, when she asks him to tell her anything about himself. I don't have any secrets. I'm a secret. Not loner enough for you? He also plays saxophone alone to jazz albums. Back at Harry's Lost In case studio. you missed that, he broke up <laughs> with Terry Gar. Good lord. She wanted to get down that night, too, and he broke up uh, with her. My goodness. He is a flawed protagonist, Paul. I mean, I'm starting to feel. Flawed human. Back at Harry's Loft Studio, he plays back the Union Square conversation in glorious analog, with enough reel-to-reel process insert shot porn to make Alan Pakula puke. The repetitious and hypnotic conversation is combined with a sound bath by Walter Murch, montage with flashbacks rhythmically conducted by Maestro Coppola. That's hot. But that's not who the conversation is really about. Harrison Ford plays Martin Stett, an assistant to the director, a mysterious figure who hired Harry to capture photos and audio of the young couple in the park. Harrison Ford adds suspense to the scene with a performance that's intense, menacing, and silent on purpose. Not simply because the movie didn't give him any lines like his previous movies up till now. Here's your money, $15,000 cash, as well, you asked. Uh, and these are our tapes? I had an arrangement with the director. That, uh, I was to give those to him, uh, you see, personally. I understand. But he's not here this afternoon. Matter of fact, he's out of the country, and he asked me to get the tapes from you and give you the money. Harry's uncomfortable giving the tapes to anyone other than the director, and his detachment from his work falters as he realizes he's handing Stett a death warrant for the young couple, and in a moment of conscience, takes the tapes back, causing a struggle between Stett and Call. I guess I can just wait on this. Stett tells Harry that he's in over his head. Now, look, don't get involved in this, Mr. Call. Those tapes are dangerous. You know what I mean. Someone may get hurt. Harry exits to the lobby only to find himself face to face with the couple from the park. And in the distance, staring, a menacing Martin Stett. Harry is indeed in over his head. That is correct. 
Shaken, Harry listens to the tape again. In the hypnotic repetition and montage of the conversation, new information is revealed. A date and hotel room are mentioned, as is the foreboding line, He'd kill us if he got the chance. Neither the audience or Harry knows what that means, but this finely crafted thriller ensures that both fear the worst. Harry attends a surveillance convention. It's like Comic-Con with less people dressed like Black Widow. Here we meet Bernie Moran, a slick, mouthy, gadgeteer version of Harry, the Justin Hammer of surveillance in Iron Man 2 terms. I don't know if you know this, but I don't speak Russian! You know how at every party, everyone's having a good time, but one guy only wants to talk about that surveillance job that got Robert Kennedy killed? Well, Moran is that guy. Harry lets his guard down and sleeps with a beautiful woman he just met who steals the tape. Who would have guessed that one of the spies was a spy? Quick reminder also, he broke up with Terry Gar. <laughs> Who would not have taken your tapes, sir. Harry returns to the foreboding office to find Stett listening to the tape with the mysterious director, played in a surprise appearance by Robert Duvall. The conversation offers Hackman, Ford, Cazal, and throws in Robert Duvall at no extra charge. 15,000 bucks. That's not bad for a day's work, is it, Mr. Collins? It's revealed that Anne from the audio recording is the director's wife, and the director now knows Anne and Mark's rendezvous location and time. Harry fully abandons his distance from these clients and goes to the hotel, at which point a Hitchcocky and paranoid thriller goes full Hitchcock when Harry comes face to face with a face being murdered. But who was murdered? That's the surprise that's waiting for you at the end of the movie. Harry returns home to a phone call from Harrison Ford. Something we've all dreamed of, but it's Harry's worst nightmare, as Stett tells Harry, we know that you know, and we'll be listening. Harry's obsession with being watched leads him to destroy the apartment from floorboards to rafters looking for the bug, and ends the movie playing jazz in the ruins of his life in the film's most iconic shot. Alone, yet again. And that's what waits for you kids in the fast-paced world of audio surveillance. <laughs> You know, if we ever described how we do this show, maybe I should do that real quick. Uh, we're coming right off to having seen the film, just in case we were wondering. Like, right. we do all that recap stuff, but that's actually I've recorded at a different time because I feel important to let the listener know we just saw this film. When you hear our reaction, we're coming straight off the movie, and then we take time to write the opening. But uh, <laughs> yeah. so we'll talk about what makes it great. Everything. Everything. I mean, <laughs> it is such a precise, laser-focused, paranoid thriller. You know, the 70s gets so much uh, attention for its paranoid thrillers, you know? There's so many to choose from. Never do I hear this one mentioned as the best, maybe? Is this, is this, this is better than Three Days of the Condor. This is better than... Parallax View? It's, I mean, Parallax View's genius. Marathon Man? Uh, uh, Marathon Man. There were a lot of them. It's definitely better than Marathon Man. I mean, you, you realize all the notes on the paranoid thriller piano. This one play, well, David Shire plays. This one like a, such a masterpiece. The paranoia is so constant through this and such, so folded into the character the conspiracy in the movie could be as big as Watergate, could be everything they reference in it is Robert Kennedy and, you know, these other very famous like Teamster cases and stuff that are referenced throughout it. And yet I think it comes down to an affair, right? It's just that's it. Isn't that amazing? You could build this up in, in your head as this giant, because all the peripherals that talk to Harry Call, they're always talking about big politics and a guy got murdered in a boat and this thing and Teamsters and da 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 da. So again, the tape is so generic that we fill it with what we think. And Harry Call does it as well. So we're very much in his position. And the fact that it ends up being an affair is incredibly simple. That's Three's Company stuff. And yet, you know, <laughs> we've built this up to like, oh, my God, it's a giant international global conspiracy. No, 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 no. He's just with this guy's wife. 1974 was the release date. So it's right in the heart of the 70s that you're talking about. Right in the heart of what I coined on the previous show, Genius Incest, which I've now brought up in conversation a number of times because I love that. The 70s had just geniuses ancestrally working with and around each other all the time. And we went through them before, but here they are again, just in case you didn't know how stacked it was. Coppola, Lucas, Spielberg, Milius, De Palma, Scorsese. And it was just, and, and to find yourself as an actor like Harrison Ford in and amongst all of them, I mean, he worked with three of those guys, uh, 
just insane that they that he could find himself in on all their different projects. Yeah, Coppola's buddy Harrison Ford shows up in American Graffiti, a movie he produces and and actively fights for for the studios. And uh, and he's like, oh hey, I like the Harrison Ford guy. I want to throw him in the conversation. These movies are so adult. Like, and I've said this ad nauseum too on the movie guys elsewhere. I, I like this era because back in the day, good films were also the most popular films. Like you don't get that anymore. Yeah, the most popular films are what they are. But what are the good films? <laughs> you know. Uh, so, but back then, you know, the the best films were Godfather, Jaws, Rocky, Empire Strikes Back. They were also the most popular films. So, um, but as a result, they were so adult. Many of them went over my head the first time I saw them. I got into movies young, and I went, "Oh, I need to see all these." I saw like Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I went, "Oh, I got to see all these." movies you know so by 81 you know when that came out you're talking about just the previous decade of brilliance but a lot of the stuff like i watched way too young network chinatown just kind of went over my head totally this one a little bit too this one a little bit too I, I totally got it but there was much more nuance and filmmaking uh filmmaking layers i got to enjoy this time than, than previous well it is just an explosion of filmmaking i mean if you're just getting now i saw this when i was maybe a sophomore in college i think you know, so you're like, oh, I got to watch all the Coppola movies and then, you know, find, but I'm also hip deep in that sort of like study everything as a complete, uh, the filmistry of everything. And man, it's That's just a good word. It's just <laughs> all over this movie. It is just played like such a fine Stradivarius. The way everything unfolds, obviously, we have this this conversation that we're going to hear over and over and over. When you get this idea of this conversation, of the thing that's played over and over and over and starts to change meaning and change meaning, uh, Coppola realizes the potential of all of that stuff. Every time this tape is replayed, it is a very different replaying. The first time just so wonderfully introduced that it's just this sort of thing. It's, it's not, I mean, it's, as, as is said many times, like, oh, it's just some boring thing. Yeah, pass it on to the guy or whatever. And we would not disagree as audience members. Yeah, that was a very boring conversation that we heard there. Boring conversation anyway. <laughs> and then each time it's replayed, uh, we get a little more information and a little more information. And just the repetition of that tape is the entire plot of this movie. The last time it's played, that is a completely, di a completely different tape at, when it's the last time it's played. And every time it triggers a flashback and every time that it's a flashback, it is a chance for Coppola to do some mont serious montage, filmy, filmy stuff. Uh, one thing I want to say about that opening shot, because it, that's such a masterful, masterful, masterful. Right? I mean, my Good God, Lord. throw the gauntlet down. I'm making a movie here. You're ready to watch a movie. <laughs> the thing I love about it, though, is uh, Coppola sees your 70s Zoom Altman and raises you. <laughs> and there's no reason for the 70s Zooms in any Altman movie. They're just zooms. This one is about being watched. Yes, your eagle eye, your eagle eye zooming in on a person happens to be our main character. Right. Follows him until the need to cut. Yeah, it was great. And of course, the great Bill Butler is shooting the hell out of this movie. If I told you this was uh, um, Conrad Hall, would you disagree? Well, I, here's where I go to Wikipedia and IMDb and do some research. Apparently, it started with Haskell Wexler, but um, it the, he got the boot. They were... Uh, so I don't know what it was between, I mean, I talk about the, all the geniuses working together. Haskell Wexler was certainly one of them, but here he had fallen out of favor for some reason with Coppola and was replaced by Bill Butler. So he, I guess he's an uncredited uh, cinematographer on this. Butler shot most of it, including reshooting some of the stuff in the Union Square that Wexler originally shot. What's interesting is Wexler gets hired to do One Full of the Cuckoo's Nest. Milos Foreman boots him and brings in Bill Butler. So it's not a bad, uh, Bill Butler scored himself a couple of good gigs based on just and jaws in between those two movies oh did he shoot jaws Isn't too Bill i mean well, it jaws? would have been the same year as, as cuckoo's nest so yeah. well, that was wow there you go bill butler i had never heard of till now <laughs> oh you really I just never heard of him oh my bill gosh. butler no i've heard of conrad hall haskell wexler time to time to crack open the jaws log again paul that's a great reread yeah, let's pretend Harrison Ford was in it. <laughs> I do have oh, that book. There yeah. you go. There's a topic for down the line. Write this down. Like when we run out of stuff or we want to do a new thing, like recast movies along the way, like that we've done. If he ends up in all the the, the film Brat Pack uh, movies, which one does he end up in? That'd be funny. Who is he in Saturday Night Fever? Anyway. <laughs> but very specifically, that last shot, that last shot very famously 
is the the panning of the security camera. And another interesting th thing I noticed, I noticed the photography all over it this time. I was, I was really keyed in on that. Some of the crazy, amazing compositions. Uh, when Harry Cole walks to the balcony of that of that hotel and it cuts to just this wide, just square boxes. And then on the other side is another building full of colored square boxes. You know, it's like, oh, these, these shots. And the postmodern nightmare that is the syndicate building or whatever, the people that hire him to do the shady stuff that he does. You know, we're in a very natural environment with Harry Call. It's a regular apartment or whatever. He happens to have three locks. I love how they just start fitting. I mean, the character is all over the paranoia of this movie. I've never seen a paranoid thriller work so hand in hand to create character and unfold the plot. As soon as he goes to meet his boss, to because he's done with the job, and he says this num num numerous times, I just hand over the tape. I don't get personally involved. Don't get involved. And then one of the rules of the bodyguard, right? So we got, we got <laughs> yeah. another, another, uh, what do you call it? Oh, we love it. We love a movie where a guy lives by a certain set of rules. Right. We love, so. and we love, <laughs> yes, we love a Ronin. A transporter. We love a, a taken. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> what I noticed this time yeah. out, even, even, you know, along with the photography was the editing. Like I first noticed in the credits, Richard Chu. Right. So, you know, Star legend. Wars. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, because you have that dialogue or that dialogue in the audio recording to play with, they did. You know, like I, I, I think as I'm watching it, I full, I think a lesser director would hang on the two subjects longer than they did in that opening Union Square shot. Like they'd be talking, and then they just continue talking, but you'd see Harry walk back to the van and get in the van yeah. and do. But that's still like. Like the audio, like the audio literally hanging over him as he does other things. And then later in the movie, it sure enough is like he's trying to, there's a girl trying to make out with him and have sex with him. And the audio is just hanging over hanging him, over. you know, like, so they just play that like a score. Cause there is a real minimal score. You mentioned David Shire, yeah. uh, David Shire, right? David Shire's yeah. uh, music. And it's pretty much just piano, except for a couple of times when he throws in a, oh, you know, for yeah. like creepy, scary moments. Oh yeah. There's but, a, um, a hell of one of those. But yeah, there's not much else in the audio to play with. So they just really take that audio and just make it a make it music wherever yeah. they can. It's really cool. And, and, and Coppola realizes the potential of that. It's not just a baptism. It's not just, you know, I'm going back to the Godfather reference, you know, that you can kill all the heads of the five families and have a baptism. Or you can make the most of this this movie clay that you're developing out of the script and, and this to play that over and over. And we get constant flashbacks. Uh, you know, to, so we're constantly going back to that. You know? And at first it starts really utilitarian because he's just mixing the multiple microphones they had on the day. And so then you cut from that microphone to this mic, and, and they start to piece together. See, that's that's a diegetic version of he's literally playing the tape and we're literally seeing the camera shooting them from the position of that microphone. But then these conversations and shots start coming in non-diegetically. Suddenly he will get a shot of them when he was laying down with the, the trying to make out with that woman and popped into his head. There's no tape playing, nothing. Now it's like haunting him. So that sort of image, those sort of flashbacks over and over and over means something different every time. Just like every repetition of the tape means something different every time. And I heard during production uh, that Coppola actually used different takes of Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest so each time you hear it, it's actually some different takes. It's not Correct. from the original. It's not from yeah. the opening. Yeah. I read that same thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, so they, uh, he just trusted his team a ton and he had to because Coppola made the Godfather and, um, well, I think he was actually still editing the Godfather when this needed to go into post too. Wow. And so it's like Walter Murch, you got it. And if it was anyone, you would go, Hey, you got this Walter Murch. You'd want to know has got it. But here's just another example of below the line talent being just such a crap term because, you know, Walter Murch picked this up and probably saw it through to the finish line while, you know, Coppola's juggling two different, he's, and he's probably doing pre-production on Godfather 2. I mean, there's a lot going on, and he just saw this through to the finish line. I just hate the fact that editors get called below-the-line talent, because right. you know, this is something I've shared with Mike J. Nichols, who's been a movie guy's guest multiple times, and we've probably ranted on it on old shows when he's been a guest. But, um, yeah, it's just he, he seems to have been a crucial part of this production, and I hate when they're called uh, well, below-the-line. And Walter Murch was you know, big a big part of the... Uh, the Zotrope uh, crime family, um, you know, because THX 1138 <laughs> yeah. was, now I don't think he was an editor at first. I think he was an audio editor, I believe, at first, because Merch later became a 
an editor, but I think yeah, because he had a lot to do with the audio from last week's American Graffiti, right? Making sure it sounded like it came in and out of the cars where people were going. So I wouldn't be shocked if he had a major hand in the audio for the conversation as well. Oh, oh no, I hundred percent. This, this, 100%, yeah. no, no, this is this is Walter Murch <laughs> at every moment. Yeah. The audio, first of all, THX one one three eight amongst his brilliant accomplishments is this bath of sound. But it's this Walter Murch, these voices that go through this vocoder, and you can hear it in the X-Wings in Star Wars. Copy, base one. Murch, take red two and three. Hold up here and wait for my signal. It's got this real great garbled, perfectly Walter Murch garble that's art that's artistic. <laughs> And it's kind of a risk, too, in those opening shots that we mentioned were so brilliant. And once audio gets involved in that opening shot, people are stupid. Right now, they're watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier and complaining that they recast Chris Evans okay. with Wyatt Russell, <laughs> which is, you know, Wyatt Russell's John Walker, who's taken over for Captain America because... Yeah. Uh, but uh, they can't figure it out. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if people went in, heard the audio at the beginning of this movie and went, you guys, could you fix your projector? It's playing the audio all crazy oh, yeah. because it's specifically going. Yeah, it's doing all this crazy yeah, stuff. It sounds like alien um, voices. It's so yeah, and it's Walter creepy Birch. and it, yeah. Yeah, it sets up a great uh, start. To the and whole it's thing. tension. It adds tension. There's so much tension in this movie. The editing adds to the tension, the the, the photography, the directing. The, it's It's just what a tense movie. Is this Coppola's only 70s movie? Now, I'm putting Ooh. heavy quotes on 70s. By the way, The Godfather doesn't really feel like a 70s movie to me. I don't know if it does to yeah. you. Takes takes place, what, in the 50s? Takes place in the... Right. Yeah, yeah, post-war. Late yeah. 40s, early 50s, yes. Yeah, Michael. So Cohen it doesn't feel like life. a 70s movie. Apocalypse Now is about the 70s, but it's not... It doesn't feel like a 70s movie. It feels like something else. It almost feels like a... It, you know, but but this one is a real 70s movie. <clears throat> Might be only, Coppola's only 70s movie in terms of true feel, not just year it came out. Yeah, I would say uh, Jack is not a 70s movie of Coppola's. No. Gardens of Stone, not very <laughs> I 70s. I can rule him yet. out, I think. <laughs> I can rule him out. Uh, how about the Rainmaker? rule him in. <laughs> not so no. much. Feels pretty. That feels straight up 2002, doesn't it? <laughs> or or 98 or whatever, whatever year it was. Yeah, feels straight up whenever the hell it came yeah. out. Yeah, feels straight up a couple of years after the client. That's what all those movies feel like. <laughs> <laughs> Grisham, the Grisham. Oh, zone. the Grisham era, right? Everybody had to make one. You, know, you talked about Zotrope, and we talked about last week the birth of Lucasfilm, and how these guys just got tired of the. Um, the studios and wanted to make their own stuff. So this was the launch of another company called the director's company. You see it in the opening right. credit, the director's company presents that's Coppola, okay. William Friedkin and Peter Bogdanovich. So now we have two other legendary directors in the circle of genius incest. And it, it's basically Paramount Pictures telling them make anything you want under 3 million. So Friedkin uh, thought the conversation was such a ripoff of blow up. He was vocal about it. So the two of them had a fissure and then Bogdanovich made Daisy Miller, which is a movie I haven't even heard of, but apparently it tanked and the whole thing folded. Yeah, I was so going to say, let me, let me guess which two tanked that uh, relationship. Bogdanovich yeah, tanked a relationship? <laughs> I'll have to read up more on that. But uh, going back to the audio, like, what is audio recording like today? Is it, I mean, is it, I'm sure it's a lot better. Is it creepier, better? Like, they had a, uh, an audio microphone gun at the top of a tower and one sticking out of a window and people walking by with bags with yeah. mics in them. And they were recording what these people were saying. Is it way better than that now? Could you just like do that? I mean, how scary is it that people are recording everything we say? Uh, I, you know, I will say, well, first of all, we are now voluntarily doing it. So you and I are recording ourselves nice <laughs> and firmly into a microphone. And then I'm going to put That's it on true. the cloud, this, Paul. Well, this I don't mind people hearing. <laughs> 
there's Russians going, what is uh, this uh, a time for killing? What is this time for killing? Yes. <laughs> what is getting straight? Yeah. Why does he punch Jack Lemon? Jack Lemon does not deserve to be punched. I love that they go through all the possible techniques. There's, you know, Harry's got something in his pocket and he's standing close to him. Then when he has to go away from him, the other guy has a fake gift with a recorder inside of it. You know, that's the, that's the only thing that would be now is that that would probably just be a guy with a microphone on it because you could Wi-Fi it to, you know, the van or whatever. But yeah. he's got to have a full, uh, you know, reel to reel. Boy, talk about this movie knows how to shoot a reel to reel deck, doesn't it? Take that, Clute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I followed it, though. You know, it's old technology that I actually know less about than current stuff you know it's older but i don't know it as well and i followed along how he synced it and played and hooked it all together analog makes good movies digital never does an yeah, ipad harry Collin, an ipad who cares but, but oh man these <laughs> reel to reels rolling and rolling yeah i love it <laughs> it's interesting a lot of this equipment in this uh, historically was much of the same wiretapping and surveillance equipment used in watergate Ah. So a lot of people thought this movie was a response to Watergate, but Coppola, and Coppola had to say, no, I've been pitching this screenplay since the 60s. Right. You know, it just so became I, relevant I, finally. It just became relevant. Yeah. So it was interesting that people were all excited to tie it into uh, well, <laughs> to, to the Nixon scandal. And, and the Nixonian paranoia and, you know, the, the paranoia yeah, of the time. Go. I mean, it was just time for the conversation to be made. You know, movies sit around. Movies have gestation just like babies. When they're ready to come out, they'll come out. One of my biggest memories of this movie, and it delivered in it in showing itself today was just brown it's a brown oh, movie what a brown movie <laughs> it's brown suits brown, coat, brown, brown suit ground brown sky <laughs> everything's just sort of brown <laughs> trees are brown it was the 70s it was a it was a wood yeah. paneled decade <laughs> right down to that uh like super thin almost made of glad bag raincoat i that, know isn't that the weirdest <laughs> greatest choice it's the weirdest ring it almost doesn't even hang on it's almost like it's hanging over him it's so light and thin yeah. But I also thought that coat, because it's so th it's so thin on purpose, like it's just it's why why even wear that? It's so thin. It, boy, it really adds to his character, doesn't it? But it's yeah. it's uh, and it never rained. Uh, well, of course, let's get to Hackman, though, because first of all, here, I mean, Harrison Ford's clearly my favorite actor of all time. But I think like the one I'm just most impressed by of all time is for film is Hackman. I mean, that guy can play anything. He's like a Jimmy Stewart or a Hanks. You want him tough. You want him romantic. You want him funny. You want him. Silly, you want to? He could do it. And if you, you just know? need someone to just roll off a line, you know, get back to work or whatever, that's all. Which is all over this movie. I just, he's just so smooth and in the moment and in the scene. Listen, if there's one surefire rule that I have learned in this business is that I don't know anything about human nature. I don't know anything about curiosity. I don't. That's not part of what I do. What I. This is my business. The I don't know anything about curiosity. That line just really stuck out to me. Well, he can't afford to have it. Clearly, it's haunted him in the past from past jobs where he's recorded people and it didn't go well. Isn't and, that great how that unfolds, know, it, too? Oh, that absolutely. he's responsible I mean, for a death. But you're finding that concurrent with the fact that this tape that he recorded might lead to someone's death. Yeah. And, and he's so fastidious with all his equipment. That's something I noticed, you know, turning the dials, turning the thing, hooking this up. And then in his real life, he's just like a mess. He can't communicate to Terry Gar's character and he can't, uh, you know, even be romantic with the girl who clearly wants to be with him for whatever reasons. And he can't, uh, you know, his, yeah, he, his house is, is uh, fastidious, but still can't control it. Like nothing he can control as well as how well he does his job. Yeah. Yeah. And which makes him a classic, you know, character straight out of heat or straight out of any of those movies we love where <laughs> the guy yeah. lives by a code. He's got a certain way of doing stuff. Um, I do love that. Uh, yeah. The Terry Gar thing, they break up immediately. The first scene we seen with them, she's trying to get something out of him. She's trying to get any information out of him and he, he can't, he can't give anybody any information about him because he's completely paranoid. It tanks his relationship. And it seems like they've been together for a while yeah. and she still doesn't know what he does. No, <laughs> it's crazy. So, but, and then I, of course, to talk about how great Hackman is, he and she both show up in young Frankenstein. <gasps> same year. Right. The same, same year. year. So I'll show you their, oh their range they got. That's fantastic. <laughs> And then later, as soon as he does reveal something about himself to the other girl, she steals the tape. <laughs> You're like, yeah, wow, know, right? geez. <laughs> it's, but, but that's how tight uh, this movie is. Yeah. And then we have the uh, only appeared in Best Pictures, John Cazale. Always good to see. Or Best Picture nominees. Yeah. At least. Um, 
Wow. And uh, Alan Garfield shows up right. in this. And when I saw him, I went, I know who that is. He's the cop from Beverly. He's the police chief from Beverly Hills Cop 2. Okay. Right. And I was right. So that's him. He shows up as uh, Moran, I think, who also is a surveillance guy, super jealous of uh, of how good Harry Call is. It was fun to watch him. Yes, it was fun to watch him. And I forgot how big a part he has in this. I mean, he dominates the second act of the movie. So Alan Garfield, check out. I, I had to look up his uh, filmography. Check out his first couple of movies. This is nuts. Uh, he is such a late 60s, early 70s fixture in the following movies. Greetings, Brian De Palma. Hmm. Uh, Putney Swope. Do you know Robert Downey Sr.'s movie Putney Swope? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it's it. It's a real thumb in the eye of filmmaking and up the system. Did you see that at, at the New Beverly? It seems like something you would see at the New Beverly. They showed it at the New Beverly, did not see it there. I was actually shown that movie by my parents. <laughs> Hi, Mom, Brian De Palma movie, the follow-up to, to Greetings. Uh, and then um, Bananas. And then, wow. now listen to this. Is this a uh, oddball countercultural uh, title or what? 1971's. You've got to walk it like you talk it or you'll lose that beat. Not, not directed by anybody we know, but but then he did go on to, which was a famous uh, uh, famous script from Zoetrope, Get to Know Your Rabbit, which is Brian De Palma, the uh, famous Zoetrope um, uh, development slate was Apocalypse Now, Get to Know Your Rabbit, uh, American Graffiti, The Conversation, and uh, then they saw THX 1138 and said, we want all our money back. <laughs> and gave up all those movies, which is interesting. Oh, wow. Get to know your rabbit, I'm sure they're fine with. But I thought that was interesting. He's in all those like really kind of rad late 60s, early 70s movies. And then he has a big star turn in this. There is an uh, appearance by an actor that will be a surprise to anybody uh, not watching. So minor spoiler, spoiler here. How, how surprised were you when uh, Robert Duvall showed up? Oh, yeah, that was cool. So, no, I remember him from this. Okay, yeah, I but forgot it's just, about that. I forget about that every yeah. time I watch oh, this. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, it's just a small part. So, you know, expect the actor of his caliber. But yeah, he came in and he was, it was just good to see him. I mean, clearly Coppola and he, have, they did Godfather. And after this, they're going to do Apocalypse Now. They're, they're a thing. So, and they should I be. believe I, I read a piece of trivia on um, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is a San Francisco movie. Uh, and some of these crew members, I think, worked on it as well. Uh, the Philip Kaufman, Philip Kaufman, one, who Tom, I yeah. think was connected to them too. Didn't he write the first draft of Raiders? He wrote the story right, of Raiders. Right, story yeah. of Raiders. He was, he, was, he was in on it. Yeah, yeah. so he connected to the whole Coppola gang. And when's the last time you saw the Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 70... A long time six? ago. It was before I saw this the first time. Uh, <laughs> there's a random Robert Duvall just as a priest on a swing. It's just randomly, he's just on the swing and he's staring. Because people start staring in that movie. That's got a great paranoia thing. So just... Suddenly, Donald Sutherland's being stared at by this priest on the swing. He's just swinging with a kid, and but, but he's staring at him, and it's Robert Duvall. And you're like, did I just <laughs> see Robert Duvall? <laughs> oh, the 70s. So, and, you know, Robert Duvall's the guy that went and did THX 1138. Well, who would yep, do that? Lucas. Shave your head and be in this movie, this indis- incomprehensible art film. Uh, and also, he's the one that packed it up in a van and hit the road with George Lucas and Coppola to shoot the rain people. He's game for anything. I mean, this guy, you know, so it's pretty cool that he shows up in all these things. Oh, 70s. Well, that we could have you again for movies, for movies, for movies. <laughs> all right. But that's not what this movie's about, Paul. Here's your money. $15,000 cash. Well, as you asked. Asked. And these are okay? No, it's about uh, Richard Stett. Richard Is that his Stett. character's name, right? Yes. Yeah, so when they finally yes, mentioned his Harrison name, I was like, Ford. oh, what a great prick name, Stett. And he is, uh, I, I, again, my memory of this movie was that he was just kind of the uh, stooge who ordered things and... and I thought he was in this as much as he was in Apocalypse Now. Could we say it's his biggest role? Bigger than Falfa? More important? Well, yeah, so biggest role, yeah. 100%. And he gets to silent act. That's a real first for him. There, In fact, the first scene... When Hackman goes to the boss, you know, suddenly he goes from this sort of like very organic world to this like straight up columns Steel, of cement. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and so he's walking through this really beautiful uh, postmodern hell. Uh, and then we have a silent introduction, very intense, silent introduction to Harrison Ford. There's a lot of staring from Harrison Ford, intense staring. Very steely. Very steely. Very steely. So well done, yeah. right? I mean, it's a great side of him. Yeah, no, he's very good in the film. You know, like, I mean, 
He's the villain. Not his big, his biggest performance yet, probably his best. Yeah, as, a, as so far, you know, and certainly you watch him in that, and you go, oh, I could trust him with something else. And obviously, then clearly he gets into the biggest hits of his career just after this. But I mean, there are shades of later Harrison Ford that has given a lot more opportunities to do. To, to be silent, to be, to smolder, to, you know, uh, have a silent rage or something like that. Part of the suspense, when you see Harrison Ford, you're like, oh my God, oh no, oh, he's in trouble now. You know, it's a surveillance yeah, conference. You, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love when you see him there. That's a great little, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and, you know, what's, what's funny is, you know, we've been saying all along, we were watching these obscure movies that we don't know where Harrison Ford shows up or what he does in them. As I was saying with Getting Straight, it's like, Random Ford. Do you never know what door is going to be opened by Harrison Ford? Well, in this movie, out of the paranoia, you never know when you're going to walk into a room that Harrison Ford's in. And, and when you do, you're in trouble. Someone may get hurt. So it's kind of like that, that sort of tone, that getting straight thing of like, ooh, Harrison Ford could pop up at any moment. In this one, it's like, oh, he could pop up at any moment. And Gene Hackman's in trouble when he does. And the best one and is when he rounds the corner and there's just a red couch with Harrison Ford on it. Yeah. It's nothing else, any color in that frame. Just a red couch with Harrison Ford. Like, you're following me? Uh-huh. Looking for Looking you. Looking for you. <laughs> Looking for you. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> yeah. And of course, I love that, that when he he's steely walking down that office with call behind him, they get to the office. He sits down and he says, you want some Christmas cookies? Yeah, no. You had mentioned the Christmas cookies. I forgot those are great. Nice Christmas cookies. Sorry, I made you want one? Oh, they're good. Oh, thanks. A nice little undercut to the <laughs> menace that is potentially there that we still don't right. know yet until, of course, know. they both tussle for the photos oh. and you realize he's got an agenda that is not uh, going to make Harry happy. It's like a shocking moment. You're like, oh, shit. Oh, my God. We're in a, we're in a deep place here. <laughs> now, look. Don't get involved in this, Mr. Cole. So, uh... The movie's legacy. Well, it gets nominated for three Oscars, picture, original script, and sound. Lost out to Godfather Part Two. ironically, Coppola beat himself. Uh, but the National Board of Review and National Society of Film Critics gave Best Picture to The Conversation. So again, say what you want. You know, the critics often know a little more than sometimes the, the, the voters do. Um, there was a TV series made with Kyle MacLachlan on NBC. Went to pilot, was not picked up. I don't know. I guess you could have him get involved in a different scenario every week where he records something, gets involved in some mayhem and then has to get out of it. That, that there's possibility there for, for something like that. Yeah. NBC thought differently though. <laughs> uh, but the film itself cost 1.6 million. So it fit into the, uh, uh, what was the group called? The, the director's company of under 3 million and it grossed 4.4, not a huge, uh, take, but based on what it cost, it hit. Nice, it's an art film. Know, good work. You know? Yeah. And then if it won the Grand Prix du Festival International du Film at the 74 Cannes Film Festival. Uh, it's in the National Film Registry Library of Congress and has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Who are these dummies who are not given this? Like, hey, I'm just happy there's 96%. I mean, that's that's saying yeah, a lot. I mean, this is, you know, you know the, for some people, I could see this being a slog. I mean, every time Victoria entered the living room, nothing was happening. <laughs> I was like, this movie's great and nothing's happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's sitting there playing the saxophone. You're like, what, why is this so great? Why, why is this so great? I don't, I don't, I don't see the uh, And I never saw this film, but is... Enemy of the State, a continuation of the conversation. That is, People love having that uh, talk online. Right. That's a that's a fun. That's a it easily could be. It easily could. I mean, why not? Yeah. Why not? I love the, I love that theory that that he could be Harry Call. Yeah. So the, the uh, definitive list of uh, Harrison Ford essentials. Then back to Harrison Ford. Okay. Back to Harrison um, Ford. Righteous anger. Uh, he's not such a great guy. I don't know if righteous no. is a thing. Here. No. And when, and the anger is smoldering it's not you find this man it's not yeah that that's what we mean from righteous anger right. you know it's it's i was looking for yeah you. i was looking for you Fifteen thousand bucks it's not bad for a day's work is it was yeah wrong. um and he doesn't point because he would if he got angrier i think um smile and charm he doesn't even have that either he's Mm-mm. again i go back to the word steely uh Very he doesn't shout steely. he doesn't anything he doesn't even hit anybody so that takes the punch count back to one from love and still a zero on the punch count. Oh, by the way, uh, this, this, I forgot to mention this, uh, uh, at the, um, the description on the copy of the 
the uh, conversation that I have describes, this is the plot described. This, this movie is not about this, but this is how they describe it. Focusing <laughs> on Harrison Ford. Well, we're just come off Journey to Shiloh, which stars Indiana Jones and the Godfather, according to one of the DVD <laughs> covers. Godfather. So. Doesn't James <laughs> Conn play Godfather? <laughs> <laughs> This description says, when a mysterious client's brusque aide uh, hires him, that's, that's, how, that's how this is, brusque aide. <laughs> that's the best thing. He is, he is brusque. He is brusque. Anyway, I wanted to tag on to Maybe we should put brusque on the definitive lift of, of essentials. Is he brusque? He's brusque often. Okay. He's often this brusque. This is the first time he's brusque. <laughs> yeah. It's a notable film in his career. He entered brusquedom. Uh, he so entered how- brusqueness. Not very brusque. <laughs> let's go. Let's let's cover the Harrison Ford brusqueness. Okay, so we have that he did a merry-go-round. Not brusque. Love no. no. Time for he was a little brusque in Journey to Shiloh. S- little and brusque. I doubt anybody would describe him as brusque. They might have just described him as slow. There's a difference between brusque and slow. Yeah, when a, br- a mysterious client's brusque aide hires him. I have to use that word more. You guys see the conversation? Uh, was Harrison Ford in that? Yeah, he played the brusque aide. He played aide. the brusque aide. <laughs> uh, is brusque not a cologne? I see brusque as a cologne from Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford's minute. brusque. I'm in it for the money. Uh, for clear and present fragrance. <laughs> brusque. By Harrison Ford. By Harrison Ford. Without me, you're nothing. Have a fun time. (laughs) Have a fun time. (laughs) Have a fun time. (laughs) So how Harrison Ford is he in this? Let's go with the percentage. He you know what's what's great about this is he feels very Harrison Ford, and yet I cannot connect anything he does in this to the big Harrison Ford highlights. He's not very Han Solo, he's not very Indiana Jones, but and True. yet, and he's not very Bob Felton. He's, he's not, not very, very Bob what Felton. he was. I mean, like this is a bit of a risk almost to cast him because yeah. you hope he could do this. Well, I mean, if he doesn't get cast in this, does he end up in Star Wars? You know, I mean, this is this is shows a, a lot of range because Lucas didn't want to use anyone from his previous movies. Which what he same thing with Indiana Jones. He didn't want to use anybody from Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> but uh, as, yeah, but there's one guy who could change your mind. Yeah, he uses Hayden Christensen twice. I don't get it. Uh, anyway. <laughs> And yet I feel there's some John Book in here. I feel there's some, like in the silent moments, there's some, you know, Mosquito Coast. There's some, you know, this, but it's not a, a quant, not yet a quantifiable thing in Harrison Ford. And yet I feel there's, there we're at 60% Harrison Ford at least. There's a little bit of a, of a voodoo transfixed uh, Temple of Doom indie. Molaram Suter. I'm like, oh, <laughs> a bit of oh that you're right. There, right. You're right. There is a little voodoo <laughs> like transfixed was... indie. Is that what they named the action figure? Voodoo <laughs> transfixed <laughs> and indie. Well, he plays a brusque eight, and then he plays a voodoo transfixed archaeologist <laughs> in Temple of Doom. That's that's the name of the Halloween costume that doesn't want to say Indiana Jones. They have to use a generic yeah, voodoo name. Trans- <laughs> voodoo transfixed. <laughs> trans- <laughs> we couldn't get the rights. We couldn't so get the just... rights. We're just calling him voodoo <laughs> trans archaeologist. <laughs> I'm, I'm very curious now moving forward, the way we're doing this in a row, that when I get to the other moments that feel very Richard Stett, I bet there's a lot of Richard Stett in Frantic, you know? But I haven't seen that movie yeah. since 1980. Yeah, but it's, so, it's not very often that he plays a villain, you know? No. Or even someone that could be wavering. He, he got into such a hero yeah. role. I mean, just in like What Lies Beneath, was he a little, we don't know what to make of this guy. Of course, presumed innocent. It went back and forth because of a trial. But um, yeah, there was, there's, so yeah, it's tough. It's a tough call. He got into such hero mode. It, it stuck with it's him. It's not the villainy that I see as 60% Harrison Ford in this one. It's the, it's the quiet intensity, uh, you know, which I, 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 I can't name right now where I feel I've seen that, but I feel like it's in places at points. It's one of the tools in his tool bag that doesn't get used nearly as often. But I'm going to go with the 60% with you on this. And that's The Conversation, really a classic. We could talk about that movie forever. It is uh, in the heart of the 70s legendary movie making, and it delivers on all fronts. So we're psyched. Uh, So if you want to go back and see what else Harrison Ford is up to, if this is where you're joining our show, you can go to themovieguys.net or everywhere we have podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music. Now we're on Pandora and Google Podcasts. We're on CastBox, Player (laughs) FM, iHeartRadio. So it's all out there. Go check out what we're doing. 
And next week. <gasps> yeah. What? Yeah. Could it be? It is. It is. Yahoo! The culmination of all the working with Lucas and the making of a legend. Next week, we bring you Star Wars. Who's he playing that again? Nice Christmas cookies, sir. I made you want one. Oh, they're good. Oh, thanks, sir.